0: Thanks very much. I just want to say, I thought we had a great family service this morning, and I was looking at the the things that people are giving thanks for here, and it's really, really encouraging. I encourage you to have a look at it, because a lot of it's to do with the, the family of God's people, although if I'd known this morning what I know tonight, I would have put another one right up there at the very top, because... I just found out this afternoon that somebody said last night, Pastor David is looking very pretty tonight. (laughs) I've been described in many, many ways over the years. I've waited a lifetime for that, but what can you say? (sighs) Do you know what happened? I shared that with Elaine and she said, it's all down to me. (laughs) Right? <laughs> but she was laughing when she said it. Anyway, just to say uh, a, a reminder that we've got a baptismal service on the fifth of June as part of the morning service, so you know just come along to that and support that service. And it was mentioned this morning that on the twelfth of June we're having what we're going to call what we're calling a vision day. You'll be getting a document next week, just giving some ideas about you know some of the things that should help to shape our vision for the future. And what we're going to do, we're going to take that away next Sunday. You'll be able to look at it and pray over it and look at the questions that we're going to use to try and begin to tease things out and open up and move towards some practical ideas of things that we can do. On the 12th of June, there'll be a morning service. And after that morning service, we're going to have a lunch. And then we're going to have a chance to break into groups and to discuss together. So it'll take a bit longer than normal but there'll be no evening service on that day. So that's just to be clear so that everybody knows exactly what's going to be happening on the 12th of June. But I hope everybody will make a real effort to come along and to to stay and be part of that so that we can find God's vision together for the next years, next few years of our time serving here in Hamilton. So let's just come and pray. Father, we... Pray tonight, and Lord, as we think of our vision, we know the vision that we need above all else is a vision of your majesty and your glory, that that should be what shapes the ministry and mission of this church. So pray tonight, Lord, we pray that you'll speak to us through your word here, through Paul's example, through his passion, that you'll speak through that into each of our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay well, uh, excuse me. I suppose we're at that point in the year where lots of people are thinking about their holidays. Some people I know are actually away on holiday at the moment, and there're even some here, I'm sure, who because of your sunny disposition, who feel as if you're always on holiday. You don't have to go anywhere. You just carry sunshine with you wherever you go. But, yeah, okay, but I've been thinking a little bit about holidays, and I've got to do that because, you know, I'm not the best at planning and making decisions about these kind of things. This week, with this passage before me, and thinking along those lines, this has led me a little bit down memory lane. And, you know, for me, I don't know about you, but the holidays that stick out in my memory... Or when I saw something or experienced something that was totally out of the ordinary, out of my frame of reference. These are the things that impacted on me and that because of that have embedded themselves in my memory. Just one example. As as part of a holiday many years ago, Elaine and I spent a few days visiting friends in Oklahoma City. If you want to meet real cowboys, that's the place to go And we had a great time there, but our minds during that time were almost literally blown away. We were impacted. Because, you see, Oklahoma lies at the very centre of America's Twister territory. Tornadoes fairly regularly pass through, and I discussed this with my friends, joked a bit about it, and got them to tell me what you're supposed to do if you're caught in the middle of a tornado, and that is jump in the bath and pull a mattress on top of you. It didn't seem too high tech to me, but that's what they said. And it was a big joke until one night, the television was interrupted while watching something to tell us that a tornado, fairly small incidentally by their standards, but that's their standards, not mine, was passing through a nearby part of the state. And the programs, kept on being interrupted by updates that made it clear that this tornado was getting closer and closer and it was exciting. Now we never actually got to see this this twist or this tornado because the closest it got was the very fringes of where we were were living then and I want to make clear as exciting as it was that didn't disappoint me too much. However, what I discovered that night was that when a tornado strikes, that there's a fair bit of thunder and lightning activity that comes along with it. And so we were standing on our friend's porch, watching all this activity, this thunder and lightning going on, when suddenly this huge streak of lightning flashed right down the street in front of us. And we looked down the street, and this massive tree had been totally cut in two right down the middle, totally blocking the road. We've still got the photographs. And I tell you, that holiday made an impact. Well, Paul here certainly wasn't on a holiday. Rather, here on his second missionary journey, he continues here the process of taking the gospel to Europe for the first time. And here, as he arrives in Athens, Paul continues his practice of taking the gospel initially straight to the centres of influence and of population, the cultural centres. For Athens, though at this time on a slightly downward spiral, was still one of the world's greatest city. Once the foremost Greek city, it had now been incorporated into the Roman Empire, but still retaining the special status of a free city. But what kind of impact, though, could we expect Athens to have on Paul? Well, if he'd gone simply as a tourist, as a sightseer, he could not help but be impressed by what he saw there in Athens. We're going to have a few pictures coming up, as I mentioned, them, one by one. First of all, by the Agora, the great open space in the city where the people used to gather and do all their shopping and trading, their market stuff and it was surrounded by porticoes and archways painted and decorated by the greatest artists of the time. And then there was the Acropolis, the city's vast citadel, which sat astride the city and could be seen from many miles around. And it was here that, that many of the idols that Paul was confronted by were situated. And it's been described by, by one writer as one vast composition of architecture and sculpture dedicated to the national glory and to the worship of the gods. So let's be clear then. At one level, these things were incredibly impressive. They were incredibly beautiful. John Stott, he says, they were made not only of stone and brass, but of gold, silver, ivory, and marble. And they had been elegantly fashioned by the finest Greek sculptors. Now just to give a, a little bit of an example of the kind of scale of what we're talking about here, we've got the statue up there. The Parthenon was the chief temple of the goddess Athena. And Athena was seen as the special patron and protector of Athens. Well you see, in this temple, there stood a huge golden ivory statue. Of Athena. And this statue was so huge that the gleaming point of the spear that Athena held could be seen 40 miles away. See, that's almost a statue in Edinburgh, that being seen here, being visible in Hamilton. And then there was the intellectual stimulation as well that was available in Athens. The impact of which you'd imagine would have made a, a consider, would be considerable on Paul, because he was a man himself of great intellect. because Athens was arguably the, the intellectual center of its time. It was kind of the Oxford and Cambridge and everything else of the ancient world, all rolled up into one. And in the Agora in those beautiful porticos, on a daily basis, some of the world's greatest statesmen and philosophers, philosophers they would gather there to teach and debate. But you know, we don't really have to speculate on the impact that Athens had on Paul. For it's made clear here in Acts, as we're now going to see, it's made clear in Paul's reaction, the impact that Athens had had on him. That Paul here was neither a tourist nor was he some kind of intellectual voyeur, but rather Paul was here as a totally committed servant of Jesus Christ. So he was neither overwhelmed by Athens' beauty nor was he seduced by its intellectual brilliance, no rather Paul was outraged by its idolatry. Outraged. That's what that phrase in verse sixteen greatly distressed. That's what that's getting across. That Paul was distressed, angry to see that this city was full of idols. Paul was angry. He was angry. As he saw the people of Athens giving themselves to the worship of idols. He was angry as he saw the gifts and talents, the intellect that should have been used to serve God, to seek God, instead thrown away in the service of useless idols. Now, we've, we've touched a little bit on this before, but still, you know, maybe for some of us, the thought of the connection I've just made here between Paul, the, the faithful servant of God, and anger is maybe one that doesn't quite sit right with us, that that makes us feel uncomfortable. So there's a few things then that perhaps we need to get clear. That is that when we speak of anger here, we're not talking about some kind of raging, uncontrolled fury. Rather, the way that this is expressed in the original in the Greek brings out the fact that rather than being some outburst, that this was a controlled and a steady reaction. And you know, the Bible does make it clear that there is such a thing as righteous anger. And that, what we find here in Paul's reaction, that that's the kind of positive way that righteous anger actually should be expressed. If you see, the facts are that God gets angry. God gets angry. He gets angry at sin and its effects. He gets angry at what sin does to his perfect world and to men and women who he created. And so too should we. We should get angry. Not as we so often do at the little things that affect our little selfish lives, but we should get angry at sin and what it does in our world. And one of the things that makes God angry is when he is denied his rightful place in the life of a man or woman. That makes God angry. When mankind, whom he created, whom he loves, when they as here, offer up their love and worship to that which is not worthy of it. God gets angry. Exodus 34, 14 puts it like this. Do not worship any other God. For the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Again, let me just make it clear here what kind of jealousy we're talking about. Because as there's a right and a wrong kind of anger, so there is a right and a wrong kind of jealousy. Selfish, self centered jealousy, me jealousy. That's wrong. When I'm jealous of someone else and what they have, that's wrong. When I'm envious of the talents and abilities they have, that's wrong. John Stott again, though, gives an example of a a different kind of jealousy. And this is what he said. A third party enters a marriage. The jealousy of the injured person who is being displaced is righteous. Because the intruder has no right to be there. It is the same with God. God who says, Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. You may be thinking though, all of this is interesting. I was going to say very, but I don't want to go too far. This is interesting though, but, but is it really relevant right now to where we are? Because we live in 21st century Britain, not in some ancient, primitive, idol-ridden society. I want to say how some of us you know, need to open our eyes and see our society today as it really is. Derek Tidbow, who was a past principal of London Bible College... He wrote a book a few years ago entitled Discerning the Spirits of the Age. And it's a wide-ranging book with an ongoing relevance. But within this book, he talks there about sport as the new religion, with sports stadium as the new cathedrals, the place now where crowds gather, and interestingly, more and more on a Sunday to worship their idols out there on the field. And others, they talk about materialism as the new religion, with those vast, usually out-of-town shopping centres, as the new cathedrals where millions go every week and increasingly on a Sunday to worship their idols of pleasure and possessions of self-indulgence. We could go on and on giving examples. So let me just say that that far from being idol-free, This is probably the most idolatrous period in our nation's history since Christianity arrived on these shores. We do need to open our eyes to ask the Lord to give us the spiritual sensitivity, perception, to see the situation we are actually living in as it really is. For perhaps then, like Paul, as our eyes also at the same time are opened to the true glory of the Lord, that we too then will burn with zeal for that glory. Perhaps then our hearts too will break. As we see men and women made for God's glory, throwing their lives away, that's what they're doing on that which is comparatively worthless. And all of this is so important. Because you see, for Paul, this was his his greatest motivation in evangelism. Because while Paul evangelized as an act of obedience, he did because he knew that this was what God wanted of him and commands his people to do. And while he evangelized certainly out of love, love for God, and love for his fellow man, separated by sin from God and lost without his love above all, you see, Paul evangelized out of a burning desire to see the Lord given the glory that he alone is worthy of. That's what happened here. He saw the idolatry of the Athenians, saw them denying God. He was greatly distressed. He was outraged by this. And he then moved straight out in evangelism. And it's interesting to see here away again, the way again as is customary that Paul's evangelistic strategy developed. Because first he went to the synagogue, to the God-fearing Greeks and the Jews. Our equivalent would be preaching and sharing the gospel in the church with you know, folk who come along, churchgoers, God-fearing people maybe on the, the fringes of the church. But you see, too often, that's as far as we go. But Paul, then though, he went out to that agora. He went out to the the marketplace where ordinary men and women gathered to meet and work and, and socialize. What would our equivalent be? Work. Yes. The street corner. The cafe. And maybe even the bar. Yes, we need people who are strong in their faith. People are able to make friends who are equipped to share the gospel, who know it well enough to share it. We need them to go out and take the gospel to the people who are out there because, you see, they're unlikely to come into us. We need to take the gospel to them, where they are, wherever they are. And you see, that anyway, that's always been actually God's way for his people. That's always been God's way. Not that we wait for people maybe to stumble upon us but rather that enabled and guided by him we get out to seek the lost. And then finally as a result of taking the gospel to where the people are, Paul gets involved in debate with those intellectuals of that day. Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, now let me just give you a very brief potted version of what these men were about, and don't be frightened because it is going to be brief because I couldn't do any more than that. Epicureans, you see, they had a scientific outlook that led them to the conviction that, that man, that the universe was constructed, composed of an infinite number of indestructible Atoms, imagine that, 2,000 years ago, they arrived at that <laughs> conclusion. But you see, for them, the world was due to chance. It was without any real meaning or purpose. There was no soul to survive death, no judgment to be faced, no heaven to be enjoyed. So life now, they taught, this life is all there is. So devote yourself to enjoying it. Devote yourself to the pursuit of pleasure. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Except, this is the difference between them and our society today, that for the Epicureans, pleasure was defined in a different way than it is for many today. It wasn't about indulging to excess basic physical appetites. Rather, it was about reaching a place of tranquil serenity. In life. Maybe they were the first people to look to be really chilled. I don't know. The Stoics, we see they taught what they taught was that the world and God are one. That God is, if you like, the world's soul. And they were ruled by reason. They believed that life was determined by fate. And that all human beings had to do was just to get on, to do their duty and endure. Just keep on going. It's a horrible world, but just keep on going. And you see, they deplored the Epicureans' emphasis on pleasure. For them doing what was right, no matter what, was what really mattered. Now, you know, this philosophy has had a greater influence uh, than we'd maybe imagine on our world, right down through history and right up to today. David Gooden, who is formerly a professor at Queen's University, Belfast, he says, when people today talk of taking things philosophically, or when they claim that there's a divine spark in everyone, or they speak of being a citizen of the world, or of the brotherhood of all mankind, they show that they have been influenced by Stoicism, whether they know it or not. What's what's interesting here, though, is, is the way that these philosophers, supposedly men of science, men of reason, what's interesting is the way here that they respond to the gospel. That is, they mock and scorn. They just try to write off with any further thought, Paul and his message. See there in verse 18, they call him a babbler. Now, what that word that's translated babbler, what it literally means is seed picker its origins were that it was used of birds scavenging in a field for seeds and then it came to be used of, of beggars picking up scraps from the gutter and then as it's used here it began to be used as those viewed as tin pot teachers people who just picked up bits of teaching from here there and everywhere threw it all together without an original idea In their head. You know how little things have changed. For the message of the gospel, the call to faith in the one true, holy, mighty God, is still so out of their frame of reference for so many, presents such a challenge to their lifestyle that rather than really examine it and consider it, they do all that they can to write it off out. Of hand. That's often the reaction of people to the gospel. Particularly, it seems to me, people who claim to be people of science, people of reason. Now, one example of this that sticks out in my memory over the years was a, a character in one of the early series of Big Brother, the only one that I watched, and I watched it because there was that Christian from Orkney, and it, who I got to know later, Cameron Stout. But one of his housemates, John, you know, I'm almost ashamed to admit it. He really started to annoy me. He was so full of himself, so sure of his own opinions. He brought to mind for me Archie Gimmel's famous quote about Graham Soonis you know, if he were chocolate, he would eat himself. <laughs> well, one time, though, John was in the diary room, and as usual, he was sharing with the world his wisdom more. Than generously. And this time he was going on about God and faith. All of this wasn't for him. He was too intelligent. He had to see things, he had to be able to prove things. Basically, insinuating that faith is for the feeble minded. (laughs) Now, internally, and maybe it was coming out, I was shouting at the TV man of science, man of reason. Well, if that's the case, please. Look at the facts and you'll soon see that believing that this world just happened, came about by blind chance, that that takes much greater faith than believing that this was a purposeful act of creation by a creator God. Why even these these people here, these Epicureans who mocked Paul, who thought they were people of reason and science, they amazingly, as we said, thought in terms of the atom 2,000 years ago. You see, they didn't believe that the atom could possibly be split. If only they'd been right. They laughed, though, at the thought of one true God who cared about the world that he'd made. They laughed even harder when they were told of the cross and the resurrection. But they would also have laughed if you told them that that tiny atom could be split. You see, men of science don't have the whole truth by far. Paul, though, arouses enough interest to be taken to the Areopagus, some translation of, of Mars Hill, and it's actually one and the same thing. Now, you see, it was usually here on Mars Hill that the great council of Athens met. And in fact, the place and the council had become so identified with one another in the the common mind that they were actually both known by the same name, Areopagus, Mars Hill. They'd become a kind of nickname for the council. So we we don't actually know whether Paul was taken to the place Areopagus, but he was certainly brought before the body, before the council. (laughs) To give them some kind of account of this new faith that he was promoting, And what I want to look at now and very briefly is having looked at the impact Athens had on Paul. That is outrage at their idolatry. And having looked at his reaction to this evangelism for the sake of God's glory. What I want to do now is just point out to you three things about the content of Paul's evangelism as he shares here. That is first. It involved identification. You see, Paul here, he built bridges with these people at various points in their argument in order to show these men that in some ways that he was one with them, that he understood where they were coming from and and by doing that to draw them along with him. For instance, he says that they are verse 22 very religious, which initially I'm sure would be taken as a compliment, but later what he would go on to show them was that their religious appetites were misdirected. He even goes as far as identifying with one of their idols, the idol inscribed to an unknown God. Now by doing this, he's not saying that he approves of this idols, of this idol or of any of their idols, No, he's using this. That's what he goes on to do. Using their admission of ignorance to the gospel's advantage. You say there is an unknown God. Well, I'm going to tell you about the God you don't know. Then in verse 28, he quotes from two of their prophets, Epimenides and Erastus. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And he uses them, he uses these quotes to underline the folly of their idolatry. For you see, if we are God's offspring, if God holds our life in his hands, then how can the God, the God who made us, who sustains us, How can he be less than us? Made of gold, silver or stone. How can he be created by us? Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that a divine being is like gold, silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. But Paul's Evangelism here, though, it didn't only involve identification, building bridges to the Athenians. No, it also involves distinctives. It involves distinction, showing them that the great distinctives of the Christian faith, will these markedly differ from their own understanding. She's building bridges out again from the great distinctives. That is... That God is the creator of the universe. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. That God is the Lord of all mankind. Verse 25 and 26 He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. And then that mankind is, is now separate from this great God, this holy God, because we've sinned because we've rebelled against him, because we have chosen to go our way rather than his way, to do what we will rather than his will. And the idea of this is is there in verse 27, when it talks there of man reaching out for God, and and the underlying picture is of a, a blind man groping in the dark. And you see, what Paul's saying is that that's what the Athenians were doing, As they built their idols. That's what people today do. As we worship our football teams. As we worship the material things of this world. As we idolize a person. That's what we're doing. We're fumbling about in the darkness of sin. You see, we know that we need meaning and purpose in life. We know that we need to feel as if we belong. As if we're loved and cared for. Because the truth is that we need God. But sin blinds us to that. So we fumble about in life, looking here and there for that which can only ultimately be found in God. But then, Paul shares the real good news, that God wants men to seek Him and that God wants to be found. Again, verse 27. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And this brings us to the final element in Paul's evangelism here. Decision. For that's what Paul, having shared this, now urges these people towards now, telling them, that the God who came as Saviour, the God who as a man died in man's place to pay the penalty of our sin, the God who by His divine power rose from the dead, so demonstrating His victory over sin and death and Satan, that this God, the Saviour, will soon return as judge. And that the only way to escape that judgment is by faith in Him. The only way is by faith, making his sacrifice ours, making his victory ours. And here Paul says, now is the time to do it. Now is the time to get right with God. Verse 30, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why the urgency? Why? Well, because we live in the days now of God's grace. That's the days we're living in. All is completed except the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection of God's people. And you see, God waits now. God holds back his judgment that more and more men and women by faith may be gathered to his kingdom. But you see, let's not presume Upon that grace. For now is the time to decide. Now is the time to respond to Him. What's coming is the day of judgment. What was the response then? Well, we're told that many sneered. That hasn't changed. But some, a few, they believed. Verse 34 A few men became followers of Paul and believed. And you see, it's all worth it. That's what it's all about. The rejection, the sneering, the mockery. It's all worth it for the few that believed. I wonder if you learned anything from Paul tonight. I want to say, I have. I have. And so what I ask now is, Lord, make an impact on me. Open my eyes to see the true godlessness of our society. Open my eyes to see the sheer magnificence of your glory. And may I then burn within with a desire for your glory. May I have an understanding of your majesty. And may my heart then break as I see in this world today your glory and majesty denied. And as a result of that, motivate me to evangelism. Motivate me to evangelize as Paul did here in a sensitive, thoughtful, but courageous way for the sake of your glory. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to Bring our praise to you. Want to thank you for Paul, for just his example, for the priorities that we see in his life that we know that need to be part of our lives. And we ask, work in us and use us for your glory as you used him. In Jesus' name, amen.